This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. So good to be with you, really excited for what we're going to share together right now. You know, that song we were just singing is an incredible display of passion and devotion. Devotion to God. And right now at Life Church, we are bringing some teaching out of a book in the Bible called Leviticus. And I'm going to explain what that is and explain what that means. But what we see here is a people who, who have that same passion, that same sort of devotion to God, like we were just singing about. In fact, they believed they were a chosen people. They believed they were a special people. They believed that they received such a call and such a message that they had to look after it. They had to steward it. They had to protect it so it could be taken out into the world, so it could be seen, so goodness and love and glory which comes from God could be shared with others. And Because when the message first came to them, it said this, I will bless you and... I will bless you and, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. I will make you a blessing. So this thing they had, this specialness that they had, they had to look after it. They had to keep it. They had to steward it. And we hear about this in one of the first five books of our Bible, the Christian scriptures, that actually the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scripture, and it's called the Torah, the law, and and it's the most uh, sacred and authoritative and valued part of the Jewish scripture. And the third book in our modern versions is a book called Leviticus, which is named after the Levites, the priests. It's the priestly book. And it's a book that gives us a window into these communities. It helps us to see what it was like for these people who felt that they had something important, something special that they had to keep, that they had to protect, that they had to guard for the sake of the world. And we have this little window here. And what we find in in Leviticus is we find a lot of rituals, we find a lot of regulations, we find a lot of practices at the beginning for worship, for the way they would uh, have their organized religious events and gatherings and life, the way things would work. And it's easy to look back on it with kind of a, a modern arrogance and think, this is you know, kind of archaic. This is kind of old-fashioned. This is, this is kind of backwards. This is kind of primitive superstition. But, you know, I just think that is such an arrogant position. That, that as if today we know everything and then they knew nothing. Well, how many people know neither of those things are right? They didn't have everything right and neither do we. That's the, the right way to look at history, and that's the, the right way to look at other cultures. They didn't have everything right, but neither do we. But we can all learn from one another. And actually, I think a better reading is to realize that 
the, 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 these people, they weren't necessarily superstitious. It wasn't that they thought, you've got to do this or God will punish you. As if God was there with his finger on the button and saying, oh, you've performed that ceremony correctly, have ten blessings. Oh, you've, you've performed it incorrectly, have six punishments. No, no, no. That, that's just the wrong way to understand it. This wasn't superstition. They didn't believe in that kind of system. What this was, it was ritual purity. It was saying, as a community, we have something we feel is important. We need to look after it. We need to keep it. We, God's called us to be different, distinct, separate from the people around us so we can show them what he is like. We need to guard that light. So they went through these rituals. They went through these uh, processes and this, this religion that they had because for them it was a way of saying that what we've been given is sacred and this earth is sacred. And these people are sacred. And this message is sacred. And so we actually need to treat it with some respect. And we need to keep going through a a process of making sure that things are pure and things are clean and things are separate. And the message is not lost and diluted and swamped by, by the strength of these cultures around them. They were an oppressed people surrounded by powerful empires throughout the lifetime of the Bible, but and all throughout, as, the, as this minority, as this oppressed people, they had to steward what they had. And this is a way that they, they kept what they'd been given. So let's understand that. When we come to Leviticus. Now, chapter 19, which is this, this chapter that we're focusing on in this series, this 11-week series, this 11-week window into this whole world, this whole situation. We're just giving you 11 weeks because chapter 19 is like a hinge chapter. It's a key chapter in this whole book. Because in the, at the beginning of chapter 19, and we see in the structure of the chapter, in verses 1 to 8, which we've been talking about over, I think, maybe the first five or six weeks of this series, we, it, it focuses on obligations to God. And indeed, most of the first 18 chapters of Leviticus deal with this. And the things we've just talked about, these religious rituals and practices, this ritual purity that designated the community as separate and distinct. And then at the end of this chapter, in a section uh, that we're not going to get to in this series, which is verse 19 to 36, it talks about the forbidden practices of Canaan, one of their neighbors. And it talks about Um, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And the reason for it is that many of these things were practiced by the nations around them. And they had to to separate themselves and distinguish themselves from these kind of practices. But then in between, and this is what we've been in the last couple of weeks and we'll be looking at the rest of uh, this series over the next three weeks. In verses 9 to 18, we see the obligations to others. You see, something changes here and something shifts. And this is why this book and this chapter is still interesting today. Why do we, in the 21st century West, look to a text from the ancient Near East? Well, the reason is this. The practices for worship that we see in Leviticus are quite familiar. And they would have been quite familiar to the Israelites when they picked them up. Indeed, other uh, nations, other gods, other practices around them uh, were similar. Other nations practiced these familiar sorts of rituals and often very similar things. 
And they were picked them up and they were, they were repackaged, they were repurposed, they were redirected. It was nothing new, it was nothing different. But what is different is that in Leviticus we see new regulations for life together. In other words, it, it, your religion, your faith, your belief is never just personal. You see, people who say religion should stay in the private sphere, sphere don't understand it. Because actually, the whole point is that their religion couldn't just be a, a ritual. It couldn't just be a, a performance. It couldn't just be an act. But it had to then affect the way that they live. Worship has a horizontal aspect. Not just a vertical one. Holiness is as much social as it is sacrificial. A community called to be holy, called to be different, distinct, separate, godlike. It's as much social as it is sacrificial. Holiness isn't conceived only in the negative, the things you avoid. Oh, you're holy because you don't do that and you don't do this and you don't do the other. But holiness conceived in positive action in everyday ethics. And this is what happens in Leviticus 19. At this point, we see a shift where there starts to be a greater and greater concern for the community and for life together. And this is the truth about the relevance of this text. Human nature hasn't changed much in these thousands of years. We still have this problem, don't we, of how do we all get on? How do we live as a community? How do we organize our society and our world? How do we trade fairly? How do we live together? How does life together work? It's a massive issue in our world. It's a massive issue in every one of our lives. And this can speak to us because they begin to wrestle and they begin to shift and they begin to see a breakthrough in how they can understand life together. Everybody was religious in the ancient world. But some of them also used to sacrifice their children, as it tells us in Leviticus chapter 20. You see, being religious is not the key. And these people went beyond that to understand, yes, but how are we going to live together? And these regulations were helpful for that. You know, regulations can be a good thing. You know, we're, we're an age where we, we, we want to free ourselves, don't we? We want to we throw off the shackles that, that hold us back. But you know, when it comes to food, regulations are a good thing. Pfft. All this stupid red tape, making us eat food that's not going to kill us. Ridiculous. You know, what about buildings? Regulations are a good thing. Keeping this roof up. I mean, what a hassle took so much longer to do all the engineering calculations. Why not just get on with it and just have a roof that falls on people's heads? But it's obvious, right? But sometimes we, 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 in our everyday lives, they can be, oh, don't tell me what to do. But actually, we, don't, we need to understand that these boundaries can be a good thing. But what we need to do is go into a deeper way of being, where we don't just do it because that's the rule, that's the boundary, but where we do it from the heart. How many people know you don't want a chef obeying the rules just because somebody's watching him? Just because, well, that's what the food regs say, I suppose I'm supposed to do that. No, you want someone who is passionate about cleanliness and hygiene. How many people know you don't want a builder saying, mm, well, it's the regs, I suppose. I mean, building control are coming tomorrow. I guess we better do it right. No, you want someone who says, this has got to be safe. It's got to be secure. It's, I've got to put the best stamp on this that I possibly can. Doing it from 
the heart. And that's what we all need to move towards. In the first part of Leviticus 19, verse 13, it says this. This is the latest regulation, boundary, rule for life together. Leviticus 19, verse 13, part A. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Now, we all know what a burglar looks like, don't we? They have their eye mask, the stripy top, the swag bag over their shoulder. Everybody knows what a burglar. Or maybe, you know, he wears a tracksuit. You know, we all know what a burglar looks like, don't we? What about a fraudster? Don't defraud. Well, we all know what that like, they look like, don't we? They have a pinstripe suit. They're in the uh, high-rise building, you know, or some government office. We all know what a fraudster looks like, don't we? But this is the reality. I would reckon, I, I would guess, I, I would venture that every single person in this room has stolen. Yeah, you know, you've got those pens from the catalogue shop at your house. You know that you do. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, you've, you, you've stolen, you know, when you were, when you were young, you know, you, you stole some sweets, you know, when you, you've taken that thing and, and not paid for it, you know, you were supposed to, that's stealing. You know, you, you've done something and you realize you haven't been charged and you didn't tell them, that's called stealing. You know, you've sold something to somebody and you've lied about its condition, that's stealing. You, you've, you, you've been creative with your taxes and your accounting. That's stealing. Every one of us has, has probably has stolen at some point. Maybe we continue to do it. I want to ask this question. Why? Why do people steal? Because it'd be easy to just say, well, there it says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. God said it, don't do it. But listen, we've got to go beyond that because we can't just read something out of the Bible and say, God said it, as if these rules are arbitrary, as if God just went, da 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 da, da this one, if random, or just chosen by, by, by some, uh, some arbiter, as if the rule could have just been, do steal, do steal. Because that's an opportunity. Can't you see? I am the Lord and I have given you an opportunity there. And if you do not take it, you, you despise my opportunities. Therefore, because you have not stolen, I will punish you. Like, if it's just because God said it, well, what's the difference? We may as well say, do steal. You see, do not steal is not an arbitrary rule. And we're going to come to that later. But why do people steal? You see, I think we should think more about it. I think we should go a bit deeper into it, because there are many reasons why people steal. First of all, probably the most obvious one is people steal to meet a need. They're hungry. They need food. They have a life-controlling addiction, and it compels them into it. And they have no means to be able to meet that need, or insufficient need, means to meet that need. They don't have the resources or the opportunity to go and get those resources. So instead, they steal. And I think, to some degree, you know, we can empathize with that, can't we? We can understand that. Number two, and I'm going to draw all these together, but number two is they don't trust the God who provides I want to be sensitive with this, but let's just realize that we see all throughout this scripture that we're encouraged to trust God. 
Sometimes even when it goes beyond our understanding, you know, some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of our God. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their children begging bread. Jesus said, you should pray, Father, give us our daily bread. And sometimes we won't keep hold of that trust. So we think instead we'll take. But I want to be sensitive with that. You know, not everybody knows God. Not, not, not everybody has come to that point. And, and they may be in that position of desperate need. You know, I don't know what I would do in, in that position, but I'm pretty sure that if stealing was the only way to feed my children, it's a difficult decision. Let's put it that way. But the reality is, we're very, very rarely, or almost never, in that position where we really is our only option. There was many reasons why people steal. You know, number three, people steal because they have convinced themselves that they are entitled to. They have convinced themselves that they are entitled to. Socrates, a Greek philosopher, talked about this. The fact that no one knowingly commits an evil action. They I'm really evil, so I'm going to go out and do something evil now. That's not the way people think. But what happens is evil is turned good in the mind. That before we do something, before we enter into something, we convince ourselves, well, really, it's the right thing to do. Really, there's some greater purpose. Really, there's a reason. And, and we feel that we're entitled. You know, often in poorer areas, cheating the landlord and the taxman and the money lender is not only considered a right, but a virtue. It's to be praised. I mean, think of the great English myth of Robin Hood. What did he do? He's a thief. He stole from people. But it's okay, because he only stole from the rich and the corrupt. So we turn it into a virtue. We turn it into a good thing. And we think we're entitled to. Things aren't fair. Things are out of balance. I'll even them up a bit. Stephen becomes a virtue. I mean, why not steal in a competitive environment? Why not steal in the global race? Take what you can get. We have a win-lose mentality. One of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose. It's like a game of football. There's no other option. So if I'm going to win, they might lose, but they've been winning a lot. I'm entitled to. People convince themselves it's okay to steal from some people because they're entitled to. Number four, people steal because they're driven by greed, jealousy, or seeking revenge. Hard, isn't it, in our culture when we see so many people who have so much, or just our neighbor who has just that little bit more than we do. But greed and jealousy and revenge can be things that stir up within us and encourage us to take. People steal because they're pushed into it by others. This might be the simple peer pressure of taking something from the corner shop as a teenager, or it might be obviously people who are in uh, situations where someone has a grip on them, whether that be a domestic situation or slavery or forced labor or something like that. They're pushed into it by others. Number six, people steal because they enjoy the thrill of it. I mean, people think, you know, stealing is all about meeting a need, but the reality is most people, most poor people don't steal. And many who are well off do. So these other reasons all come into play. There's far more to it. 
You know, a woman went into a shrink's office and he said, I'm afraid you're a kleptomaniac. And she said, really? Is there something I can take for it? People steal for the thrill of it. Number seven, people steal because they lack empathy. You know, sometimes this isn't pathological. It's not that they, they always lack empathy in every area of life, but it might just be in that moment that something happens and they don't think about the consequences. Listen, if you find yourself going into that place, take a deep breath, slow down, and think about the consequences and the people that you are affecting. Because they're real people with real concerns just like you. Think through how you are affecting others. People steal because they lack empathy. They also steal because they have unresolved emotional issues and feelings of deprivation. Sometimes a feeling of deprivation starts in childhood and it creates this lack in us. And we think that stealing and taking is a way to fill that. But we find, as I want to talk about today, that the more we take, the less we get, the less we end up with. We take more, but we get less. People steal like they do many things to try and feel the lack because they haven't dealt with issues. But when we steal, we counterintuitively end up with less than we had before because we lose something far more important than material possessions. True peace and happiness doesn't come from taking whatever you can get. True peace and happiness comes from loving relationships. Number nine, final thing. Why do people steal? They steal because they think they can get away with it. Just because they can. Well, I can. You know, last night, um, I noticed that my neighbor's uh, car boot was open. And we came in and we thought, mm, should, we, should we, you know, put it down? Should we tell them? And it was, it was part, it, it was, it's not part on a driveway or anything. I don't know which house it is, whose car belongs to. It's a newer car. And then... We went over, and it's got this whole hydraulic system attached to it, and I thought, well, I better not mess with that. Anyway, I woke up this morning. The boot was still open. It's been open all night. But a lot of people, well, that's an opportunity, isn't it? Just like when you're filling your tax return, just like when someone pays you cash in hand, and you think, well, I don't actually need to put this through the books, do I? I can, just because I can. Or some people, it's because they've got power. They're stronger and more powerful and they like the feeling of dominating somebody else just because they can. I mean, why wouldn't you do it just because you can? They think they can get away with it. But listen, we don't do things just because of the threat of punishment, as we talked about before. That is such a low way to live. We need to go to a higher place than that. Well, just because I think I can get away with it. Listen, if being honest and virtuous are just abstract notions... No one's going to buy into them. It's just an idea. Put it, put it this way. Let, let me make it really clear. It's hard to do the right thing when you separate the things you do from the person you think you are. And this is what we all tell ourselves. I'm a good person. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as them. And what about her? I'm a good person. But then we go around doing things that are not doing good. We're not being good neighbors. And when we're stealing and when we're on the take, it's not a good, positive contribution to our community. But we keep telling ourselves, I'm a good person. Yeah, 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 but, but I'm a good person, so I need to take from them because they're not. 
Or I, I, I could use this better. I could do something better with this. And, on, and to all of our ethics and everything we're talking about in this series, this applies. We've got to be careful that we don't tell ourselves one story and turn evil good in the mind. Because everybody, even the worst perpetrators of the most heinous crimes that we can imagine, convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. It's difficult. Don't steal because you won't, you'll get caught. Don't steal. God will punish you. It's kind of the same as the first one, isn't it? But no. Just like the chef and the builder, we should do good from our heart, from our desire, from our character. But we live in a culture, as maybe we always have, where people are more concerned with doing what benefits them in the short term rather than building their character, something which pays off in a lifetime. Don't steal because you'll get caught. No. Don't steal because of our life together, because we're all connected, because we're in community. This is the reason not to steal, or else it could have easily just been do steal. Don't steal because of our life together. The unfair distribution of resources has weakened the fabric of society by eroding trust and upsetting our offensive sense of fairness. And some people, like Robin Hood, use this as a reason to steal. I'll even things up again. But remember, this can also be used as an argument against stealing because we can't make thieves the arbiters of fairness. You know, why is Robin Hood the one who decides what is right and what is wrong? You know, in other words, you can't put the police in charge of the market. Now, the police can supervise the, the, the taking, the, the police are in charge of, uh, of making sure that the taking of things is fair and people don't take things that are not theirs. But when it comes to trading, if the police now become in charge of the market, what's going to happen? Bribery, corruption, backhanders. You've got to separate these things out. You can't take something because you've decided that you now are the one who decides what's fair and what is not. Instead, we need to contribute to our life together. And we need to challenge these things wherever we find them, even when we find them on a society-wide level, on a national level, on a global level, because people are being oppressed, people are being took from. You know, look at the way that when you turn 18, credit card companies are all over you. The way that credit card companies market to students, you know, neurologists tell us that the adolescent brain isn't uh, developed the way the adult one is to understand the buy now, pay later math. They haven't grasped that as fully, and some of us never get to that place. You know, we were all hunter-gatherers, and grab it now was always more beneficial than get it later because you wouldn't be alive to get it later. And that's within us all. But, you know, neurologists tell us that particularly within adolescence, they haven't grasped that. They can't see it, the long-term plan. So the way that credit card companies target students is child exploitation. So we've got to speak into these issues in society where the societal level stealing, societal level robbing and defrauding of our younger generation. You see, when the borrower and lender scales are too out of whack to too long, what happens is resentment builds on both sides. People stop paying the mortgages and say, oh, they're taking the economy down. But then 
those with the debts say, yeah, but you've loaded this upon us. You've exploited us. You, you, you've given us more than we could, we could bear. And they start to attack the other. But we've got to be careful. Don't demonize the poor or the rich. Who's destroying our communities? Oh, it's the rich exploiting the poor. Who's destroying our communities? Oh, it's this feral, poor, underclass, running wild, committing crimes. Well, I think we shouldn't demonize the poor or the rich as more or less immoral. There's good poor people and good rich people, but we shouldn't concern ourselves there with being judge and jury. What all of us should concern ourselves is with being good neighbors. Learning to be good neighbors who act justly, who love mercy, and who see generously. And let their life flow not from striving, but from a genuine peace at the center. The second part of this verse, as we draw things together this morning, says this. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. In the context of stealing, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Is this literal? Absolutely, in this case. Absolutely, in this case, they're saying, this is exactly what you should do. This is clear. This is a specific example. You hire a worker, you pay him on the same day. Is this something which is an irrevocable edict for all times and all places for the rest of human history? No. So, so, so you should always, if you hire somebody, you should always pay them the same day, no matter what situation. No, because we have to understand the way that the Bible works. You know, sometimes, and we see this in the latter part of Leviticus 19, which, as I said, we're not going to get to in this series, but let me show you. You see, people say, okay, so you should pay people the same day. Okay, well, it says in verse 28, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Well, there's some people here with tattoos today. And you've had some Christians tell you, well, it says in Leviticus 19, in black and white, don't get a tattoo. It's there. Why are you arguing against scripture? It's very clear. Do not get a tattoo. Simple. Black and white. Just like you should pay people on the same day. Black and white. The thing that these people often tell you not to get a tattoo is they with their big Bibles and their suits and their clean-shaven and their short back and sides, is that in the verse before, verse 27, it says, Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. So when people say, don't get a tattoo, it says in the Bible, but I don't see them with the Orthodox Jew hair coming down the side. I don't see them with the, the beard going out here with the whole bushy beard thing going on. So just at least be consistent, right? So you see, the whole point about the tattoos and the marks for the dead and everything was what we've talked about. It was a distinguishing from the people around them. And when you see the other practices and the other things that people are involved in, like I say in the next chapter, sacrificing your own children, it's horrific. It's barbaric. And God says, look, if you do that, it's fatal. Because we can't have that in our community. And this is a mark of distinction. So listen, when he says pay someone on the same day, say, whoa, I got an invoice and it said 30 days terms. 
and I waited 15 days, and now I realize I should have paid them on the same day. No. What this verse is talking about is the day laborers. Now, these day laborers were not family members. People at this time, they lived in, in groups, uh, and they lived as extended families, and they would have farms, and they would have land, and they would work together. It's hard to farm as an individual, isn't it? But you get together, and you can do something, and you can support each other, and you can share the load. But these people somehow had lost their land. They had low status. They were easily exploited, and they were in immediate need of the wage to feed their family. They may often have gone to do a day's work, taken the money, gone immediately to the market, bought food, and taken it home to their children. And if you didn't pay them, their children weren't eating. So in other words, don't exploit the poor. If you've agreed to pay somebody, pay them on time and pay them the full amount. Be a person of your word. Be a person who helps uh, people with dignity. If you've got the ability to give somebody a job as an employer, that is a great thing. And you should be valued because you're contributing and you're helping somebody. But you must do what you said you would do. And what we see here is, again, in distinction to the cultures around them, an emerging concern for the powerless members of society. Something begins to spring up here, which we can learn from today. Not by reading everything in black and white and thinking, right, I'll pay people on the same day. I won't get a tattoo. I won't cut my beard. No. See what's going on here in the story. There's an emerging concern for the powerless in society. The band are going to come up and join me as we close. And this concern needs to get to the heart of us, like the chef and the builder. It needs to get to the heart of us. You see, charity is a dangerous thing because charity can be employed as a technology of capitalism. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Once a year, Red Nose Day comes around. We put £10 in and we tell ourselves, I'm a good person. Then we go out and grind the wheels of oppression for 365 days and wonder what's going on. No, we need to develop a concern within us which actually affects all of our ethical practices and the things that we do in our work, in our life, in the things that we buy, in the way that we live, and let our ethics go all the way through us. You see, here we are in church, and the thing is, just like charity, prayer can function in that way too. That when we hear about something, we say, oh, God, bless them. And we pray for them, and then we go on our merry way. But actually, good prayer, what real prayer does, is it starts to change us. Because a relationship with God starts to reorder our desires, reorder our loves, reorder the things we care about. So when we pray uh, genuinely, what happens is it actually propels us out, it leads us out, it, it informs our every day. So, so let's not give nominal amounts and pray nominal prayers, but let's give so much and pray so much that it actually changes us and it makes every single day and every single action one that is transformed to this different way of thinking. See, God rescues us with his incredible love. And see, I don't believe in a God who rescues us from God. You know, God wants to punish us, but then God decided to rescue us from the punishment that God was going to give us. You hear that a lot. I don't believe in it. 
I believe Jesus is such a demonstration of love. I love what it says in the New Testament. By, by God's Spirit, God mediates. His love was shed abroad in our hearts. How beautiful is that poetry? It's like our hearts are warmed. We, we, we are so transformed by this incredible act of love that it rescues us from these reasons to steal, these reasons to be on the take, those unresolved issues that we have, that lack of empathy, those, that thinking we can just get away with it, that concern for me first and who cares about others. The things we're pushed into, the greed and jealousy that, that drive us. The fact we don't think we can trust God. Will these things melt away when God rescues us from being those kind of people? Listen, we don't have to be like everybody else. Take whatever you can get. But actually, we can be generous. You don't have to take whatever you can get. Instead, we're invited to contribute to a flourishing community. And I don't want to stand up here today wagging the finger. Don't steal. Don't steal. Come on, it says in the Bible. What I want you to do, and hopefully what I've been able to give you time to think about this morning, is the fact that we're invited into this life together. And I'm inviting you to be a person of integrity, a person of concern, a person of generosity. Because then you become a contributor in our communities who's helping to change it. We change the way that we feel and think about things. And that's what this is all about. And I want you to know that that is what the Jesus way is all about. That is what this scripture is all about. It's not about rules and finger wagging and, oh, I'm a bad person because I didn't do what's written down. Listen, these things are written down to help us become the human people that we're really supposed to be. And Jesus embodied that and called us to follow him in that. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.